Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Let's pray together as we stand. Our Heavenly Father, we do indeed rejoice in your rescue. You alone can rescue. And we rejoice in your Son, uh, who we will meet again this morning in your word, the Son who comes to forgive us, uh, those of us, which is all of us, sinners, who comes to call us to abandon other masters, other loves, other miserable gods, and turn to you, the true God, who made us and loves us. And we rejoice in he who has done all of that so that we can be with you. And so, Father, we do pray this simple prayer this morning, that in your word we would meet Jesus. And we pray this for your glory and our good. Amen. Please take a seat. And uh, hopefully inside your order of service is a, a pretty simple outline. It uh, looks a bit like this, this a white sheet of paper, and that will guide you as we uh, continue our series in uh, the early chapters of Luke's Gospel, looking at the ministry of Jesus Christ together. And we're up to Luke 5, uh, verse 17 to 32 is what we're looking at today. It's page 1032 of the Church Bibles. Friendship. Uh, is, I think, what life is all about, ultimately. It is, as uh, the great uh, author C.S. Lewis once said, uh, describing a a group of friends uh, simply known as the Inklings who met in a pub in Oxford uh, every week. He said, Is there any pleasure on earth as great as a circle of friends around a fire? Uh, How good is friendship? How good is it to be known and to know others? Uh, to have people that uh, really do truly know you, who you feel completely at home with, uh, those you've done life with, uh, whether it be a childhood friend that you're still thick as thieves with or uh, a workmate that uh, over the years you've clicked with or uh, a neighbour or perhaps even the greatest adventure of them all, uh, marriage. How good is friendship? How good is a good friend? Uh, But how frustrated, how limited friendships can be. Uh, friendships are so often fragile, aren't they? Uh, in just a moment, they can be broken, whether it be by uh, wrongdoing that can't be repaired or by misunderstandings that remain clouded in the friendship or simply by others who come in and take our place in the friendship. Uh, friendships are fragile and also friendships are temporary. Time or context or distance fades even the strongest bonds of friendship. Uh, regularly, uh, Liz and I uh, look back at our wedding invitation list. I, I think it's about 13 years ago. I probably should have checked that before I got up here. Uh, and it's remarkable to look at that list and think, how many of those people would we invite now to our wedding? Uh, not because they are now enemies, but are they our closest friends? Uh, friendship is often temporary. And friendship uh, is often inadequate. Even the best friendships, even those that we love deeply and rely upon, uh, can come up short. Sometimes we as friends don't have the answers, do we? Sometimes, although we wish we had the the right words to fix our friend's situation, uh, we can't. But despite their uh, fragility and despite their frustrations, friendships remain for us at the heart of life. And it's not a surprise because we are creatures made for friendship. 
made in the image of a God who is Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, made to be known and to know others. We are wired up for friendship. And it is this, I think, that makes the ministry of Jesus Christ so vital, so important for us. For the one uh, being served by Jesus, and that is what the ministry of Jesus Christ is all about, he has come to serve us. The one being served by Jesus, that is the Christian, is the one Jesus calls friend. Friendship with God, that is what Jesus' ministry offers us. It is an audacious claim, isn't it? Friends with God. Uh, Here's how the atheist uh, H.G. Wells once put it when uh, hearing of that idea. He said, what? To think of that up there having fellowship with me? I would as soon as think of cooling my throat with the Milky Way or shaking hands with the stars. It is a huge claim, friendship with God. But the ministry of Jesus Christ brings that exact thing to us. Here at last is a, not a frustrating friendship, not a limited friendship, not a temporary friendship, but an all-satisfying one. It is, as the Christian William Carey once said, all my friends are but one, but he is all-sufficient. Now that is what the ministry of Jesus Christ offers us. And that's what we'll see today as we uh, continue to look together at Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 5. As we hear Jesus' words to us today, I suspect that there'll be some here who the whole concept of friendship with Jesus is, uh, it doesn't make any sense or has any appeal. And there'll be some here who have no friendship with Jesus. And then there'll be others here who perhaps uh, uh, have some sort of religious relationship with Jesus. It wouldn't be described as a friendship that's uh, too intimate. It's not based on a need of him, but on custom and practice and duty and morality and attendance but then there would be some of us perhaps many of us I hope who would say yes I am a friend of Jesus well wherever we are this morning as we hear the word of Jesus my prayer is that Luke will again or perhaps for the first time convince you of the all-surpassing value of friendship with Jesus And so let's look at it together. Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 17. We're going to see three reasons you need a friend like Jesus. Now here's the first of them in verses 17 to 26. You need a friend like Jesus because he has come to forgive sinners. You need a friend like Jesus because he is the judge who declares you innocent so that you are free to go out of his courtroom. And let's look together. Verse 17. One day he, that is Jesus, was teaching... It is, as we've seen really all the way through this series, uh, Jesus' ministry here on earth is first and foremost uh, a preaching ministry. He has come, uh, we were told back in chapter 4, to proclaim favour. And by now in Luke's account, uh, that news has spread further and further. To the point that uh, the Pharisees and the experts of the law of all around have come to check out his teaching. Have a look at verse 17. Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. They've come from everywhere, sitting there in this synagogue. And as we uh, heard uh, read out for us in Luke chapter 11, these are the sort of people who, who descend upon a synagogue and take all the best seats. So they're crowding around Jesus as he's teaching. Pharisees, uh, expert theologians from all around, but with no interest really, as we'll see, in being friends with Jesus. They have come not to have friendship but to assess him they're sitting sitting in judgment these are seats of judgment as they hear jesus teach they are assessing every word he says 
And as we see them, I think it's appropriate to say at this point, if, if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, that is, you are not in a friendship with Jesus, let me say that what they're doing here is, is a good thing. It is good to deliberately assess the words of Jesus. If you want to investigate Christianity, you've got to go to the source. You have to judge, you have to assess Jesus' own claims about himself. But as you do something like that, as the Pharisees do here, and as they will find out, it's important to know that when you assess Jesus' words, it's not a one-way process. Uh, The very word of God, the word of Christ, assesses you. But for now, see these uh, supposed religious leaders who were meant to lead the people, but rather than lead them, they're utterly stationary at this point. Uh, But God isn't. Again, have a look at verse 17. While they sit there stationary, these people who were meant to lead the people to God, the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to heal the sick. Here is our God on the move. Father sending his son to proclaim favour, spirit of God, that is the power of God present to heal. All of these signs of God's kingdom breaking through into this world. Signs of what Jesus will do decisively in his death and resurrection. Uh, Here is God on the move. God in the business of restoration. And what we're going to see in these uh, verses before us uh, through the ministry of Jesus Christ is just how huge the extent of that restoration is. The healings that we have seen in Luke's Gospel thus far and the healing that we will see again today is about to make explicit just how amazing the restoration Jesus plans to bring is. So come and see that. Now verse 18. Some men carrying a paralytic on a mat, uh, some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. And when they couldn't find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. I love this scene. It's a familiar one, I suspect, to many of us, but here is this paralyzed man and his friends who hear news of Jesus' ministry, news that he's in their town. And they hatch a plan together to get their friend, whatever it takes to get their friend before Jesus. And so they'd arrived at his home early that morning and the paralysed man would have uh, been picked up off his mat and carried by the friends, waving goodbye to his family, uh, carried through the town to this house where Jesus was teaching. It's a simple plan. Whatever it takes, they will get their friend to meet Jesus. And uh, in this case, because of all these Pharisees taking the the good seats, they can't get in and so uh, somehow they managed to get their mate up on the roof. And in the chaos of sort of dust and broken tiles, they lower their friend right in front of Jesus. Here again, as we've seen all the way through these early chapters of Luke's Gospel, is a picture of desperate faith. Whatever the situation, they will take their friend to Jesus. He will know what to do. Here is the one who Hebrews tells us offers gracious, timely help every time we need it. The friends are convinced of this. He'll know what to do. We need to get him to Jesus. He is not only a picture of faith, but a picture of compassion. True compassion. True compassion for our Christian friend is to bring your friend to Jesus. And how I think we need to see that in our own friendships. With unbelieving friends or unbelieving family, they don't need to hear our words, but his words. They don't need our help but his help. 
All our apologetics, all our evangelistic endeavours must have a direction of travel that leads to him. He'll know what to do. And not only in our interactions with unbelieving friends, I think we need to hear this in our own Christian friendships. You see, true Christian friendship is bringing one another to Jesus again and again. Sometimes you meet Christians who say of themselves, or perhaps more often uh, others say of them, uh, you know, they're quite good at giving advice. Uh, They give good counsel. They're they're wise. I reckon all too often in our friendships we think that the answers lie in us. Uh, At best, we become functional humanists, relying on human advice and counsel to, uh, to help one another, convinced that we have or should have the words to help our friend. Let me ask you, have you ever felt frustrated in a friendship or or powerless to help a friend? Whatever their situation, your words just don't help. Or worse still, we feel that way, but our friend has grown dependent on our counsel. And when our words, as they will, inevitably fail them, we can crush them. You see, true friendship is not relying on ourselves to help our friend. True friendship is bringing my friend to Jesus in prayer, in his word. It it, it seems impractical, doesn't it? It seems almost cliched. But I suspect we only feel that way if we esteem our own capacity to help higher than his capacity. Otherwise, again and again, we'd take our friend to Jesus. And that's what the paralytic friends have done here. Jesus looks down and sees this desperate man looking up at him. And then he looks up and sees these faithful circle of friends claiming their share of favour for their friend. Jesus sees their faith. Uh, but then says this, verse 20. Friend, your sins are forgiven. You're forgiven. You can almost imagine him lying on the mat thinking, great, that's, that's very nice, Jesus, that's fantastic, that's very kind of you, but I'd like you to do something about the legs. That's what I need. Be practical. Isn't it obvious what I need? What they don't realise is that Jesus has done something immeasurably practical. His power to heal goes way beyond legs. He has come to heal our broken friendship with our maker. A Jesus who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, Ephesians says, responds to their faith with this declaration. Here at the very root of the problem, here at the very, the very heart of the problem, broken friendship with God, here where sin sort of scarifies everything in human life, here, friend, I forgive you. That's a big claim. And here is where uh, the Pharisees come back into the scene to help us just see how big a claim it is. Who does he think he is, they say in verse 21. You can't say that. This declaration of innocence in the courtroom, the judgment room of all the earth, only one sits on that seat. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus' response to them is not to say, hey, look, steady on, you've you've got me wrong. I'm not saying that. No, in fact, he confirms it. You've got it. Verse 22, what on earth is your problem? That's my paraphrase of of his question there. Have Have you missed what's been happening so far in this account? Did you not see the miracles? Why are you asking who I am? Isn't it obvious I've already shown you my authority, authority only God has. Only God has authority over evil or sickness or nature or death, the things that I've shown my power over. Only the power of the Lord holds sway in such realms. Healing and forgiveness, that's God's domain alone. 
Uh, such power is beyond us, isn't it? Uh, ours is a world with no answer to brokenness like that. No answer at all. No words, nothing. Uh, all the queen's horses and all the queen's men cannot put Humpty back together again. But this king can. Here is the one with the power to heal. Beyond all we could ask or imagine. And he wants us to see it. And so he pushes us and the Pharisees with his question in verse 23. He says, which is easier then? To say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk? Which is easier? It's a great question, isn't it? As if our saying, as if our words could do either of those things. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? Well, in one sense, yes, it is, isn't it? Who can prove forgiveness? It's just cheap words. I forgive you. Who can prove that? He's, he's made a statement about the final judgment verdict of God and he's brought it right back to now. Who can prove that? All we have is his word. And so, yes, in one sense, it is easier, isn't it, to say your sins are forgiven. But we don't. Do we? Is, it, is that the pattern of relationships in our world, human relationships? Is that the way we live? I mean, do we really forgive wrongdoers like this totally and forever? One of my heroes growing up uh, was a cricketer, a South African cricketer by the name of Hansi Kronje. A brilliant captain, brilliant batsman, brilliant fielder, brilliant at everything. I once met him in an airport, made my life up to that point, got his autograph. Uh, And in a whole series of really bad decisions, he went from this hero in South Africa, really a hero of uh, the new South Africa, to just a a complete criminal, uh, taking money, more money and more money for uh, fixing parts of cricket matches. Eventually owned up to it and repented and said, look, I've totally blown it. I remember the day he died, the Sydney Morning Herald had on the front page of it giant letters, corrupt cricketer dies in plane accident. Even with repentance, even with remorse, there was no forgiveness And just this uh, other week, I heard on Radio 5 uh, a two-hour special on him, again, painting him as this horrible person. Now, we don't know forgiveness like Jesus is speaking of here. It's not easy to say or do. No, saying and meaning, I forgive you wholly and forever, that isn't easy at all. To forgive, uh, really forgive, you have to be prepared to carry the full cost of the sin on yourself. You have to expect the wrongdoer to carry none of it. You have to let them go free. And so Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven. And when he says it, it's not said lightly at all. He knows the cost of such a declaration. This man, like you, like me, will be healed by the death of the one who has just said this. The cost of forgiveness will be paid by him. He will carry it. Now this is what Jesus means when in Luke 4 he announces favour. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Friend, your sins are forgiven. But to show the Pharisees and to show us he has authority to declare that, he will use this healing of this man to declare it. And so verse 24, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, he took what he had been lying on and he went home praising God. Can you imagine that homecoming? 
Uh, this miracle uh, Jesus performs confirms his status as the Son of Man, as the one who has authority to declare things that are as if they're not, guilty as innocent. This miracle confirms it, but it's just a down payment. You see, his mighty resurrection is what guarantees us for it. it. It's how you know your sins are forgiven when he says it. Here is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, and if he declares you forgiven, there is no higher court anywhere who can dispute that verdict. And so behold Jesus, the best friend you'll ever have, the son of man, the judge who knows you at your worst and has the power to forgive you. Now let's look at the second reason far more briefly. Uh, You need a friend like Jesus because he has come to call sinners. Verse 27 of chapter 5. He's the king who calls you to repent, to abandon other masters and follow him. That's why you need him as a friend. Uh, Here in these two verses, 27 and 28, you see the power of the word of Christ to, to not only to declare someone forgiven, but to change their heart. Verse 27, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Tax collectors were the the lowest of the low. They were threefold sinners. Uh, They worked for Rome. They were betrayers of God's people. They were fraudulent and greedy. They loved money. And they were constantly in contact with Gentiles. Here is a man who, in the end, lived for and loved money. Money was his master. He'd fit right in, wouldn't he, in the Western world? Circa 2012, many mastered by money. In fact, many countries mastered by money. It's a miserable God, though. We keep propping it up, hoping it will deliver. And I suspect most of us, if we're honest here this morning, are easily seduced as well by the love of money. Well, Levi loves it. He's mastered by it. And into such a life comes Jesus, and he says, Follow me. Abandon your current love, your current master. Follow me. The word of Christ here does nothing less than break his love of money and cause him to love Christ instead. And so I think in looking at these verses, you need a friend like Jesus because here is a friend who is not prepared to leave you where you're at. You need a friend like Jesus who calls you a sinner and then says, repent. I reckon we've got too light a view of repentance. We pray confessions of sin almost every time we get together, but in the end it's so easy it becomes just lip service. But repentance is not lip service, it is revolution that begins in our heart and our mind. And that's what Jesus has come to call us to. Now here's how the great preacher Spurgeon described repentance. He said, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. That is why the ministry of Jesus Christ is so precious to us. Here is a friend whose word keeps calling us to change, calling us to decisively break from our old life, old patterns, old views, old loves, to a new life shaped by him and lived for him. How we need him to do that. Because I don't think we have friendships like that, do we? Uh, Even our Christian ones so easily become, well, our friendship to our Christian friends is the ministry of the status quo. 
where we meet and we confirm each other's choices and attitudes and lifestyles and loves. Or the ministry of silence, when the call for repentance is needed, we are silent. And so we need his friendship. Because he won't do that. He's too faithful a friend. He loves you too much. And so he will again and again in his word call you away from other loves back to him. And so how we need a friend like Jesus and how we need to take one another to him. Now one final reason why you need a friend like Jesus, uh, verse 29 onwards. Uh, You need a friend like Jesus because he has come to befriend sinners. Uh, He's the banquet host who invites you to his table. Now this is my favourite Now, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ in full flight. He has not come just to forgive sinners so that you're free to leave his courtroom. He's come so that you're free to stay as his friends around his table. Can you imagine it? It is, as C.S. Lewis said, is there any pleasure as great as a circle of friends? Well, Jesus, your king, invites you to his table. For it is, as uh, Luke 7 will say, uh, it's it's said as an accusation against him, but he says it with pride, he eats and drinks with sinners. So have a look at verse 29. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others, that is sinners, were eating with him. Now here is ultimately where the ministry of Jesus Christ leads, Jesus and sinner at table together. It's a gathering, uh, if you look at it, where all are at ease in each other's presence. There's no embarrassment. And Levi is not the least bit embarrassed to be friends with Jesus. Heck, he's invited all his workmates to meet him. And Jesus is his friend and he's very happy for you to know about that. And even more remarkable, Jesus is not ashamed to be with Levi. That's the gospel. Jesus is saying to all who would hear, even before his Father in heaven, Levi, he's with me. Andrew Reese, he's with me. We're friends. How good is that? And the banquet before us in these verses, well, it's a great banquet, we're told. Levi has uh, spared no expense. He's thrown a huge party. Here is the joy that forgiveness brings. Here is the joy of heeding the call to abandon miserable gods for the one true God. Here's the joy of friendship. And it's not just a great banquet for Levi, it's a great banquet for Jesus too. He'll say in Luke chapter 15 verse 10, he'll say these wonderful words, I tell you there's more rejoicing in heaven in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents than anything else. In fact, Luke 15 uh, tells a story just like the scene in front of us here of a lost son, a bankrupt sinner, desperate to come home. And what happens? Well, hear this. Let me read a few verses from Luke 15. You'll know them well. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine who was lost is found. So they began to celebrate. Restoration and feasting. That's the goal of the ministry of Jesus Christ. He's not come just to forgive us, nor even just to call us to repentance. All of that is to lead us to the place where we can be with him. It is, as John 17 puts it, this is eternal life. You want to know what eternal life is? 
Eternal life is not just some distant, constant time. Eternal life is not just being able to do the things you never managed to do in this life, climb the Himalayas, uh, swim across the Amazon, whatever it might be. No, eternal life is that you may know him. And so here it is, 5 verse 29, Jesus at table, fellowship with sinners, celebrating as they do in Luke 15. But as we close, uh, listen to the next part of the story in Luke 15. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came to the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called to one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Well, your brother has come home. But the older brother became angry and refused to come in. Now hear those words and then look back at Luke 5 verse 30. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They're the older brother, aren't they? They're incensed by this party. It makes no sense to them. This is not their picture of God. Their God is distant. Their God is a God who waits for us to get our act together before we can come to him. But here is the true God. Here is the one who comes for the sinner. Here is the one who, while we were still a long way off, met us in his son and brought us home. Here is the God who goes into the fray, who is numbered with the transgressors. You see, long before we knew anything of our poverty, of our need for favour, he was a long way. He was on the way. Father, Son and Spirit had planned the day they'd meet Levi in that tax booth. They knew that day was coming and they rejoiced when it arrived. Just like he knew the day when he met you was coming. Perhaps for some it's today. They're incensed. This is not their picture of God. And finally, they're incensed because it's not their picture of themselves. The Pharisees here are indeed the elder brother refusing to go in. You see, for them, the people inside that house are partying as they are with Jesus. They're people who need God but don't deserve him. They, on the other hand, don't really need God. They're reasonably self-sufficient, but they, well, they do deserve him. How easy it is for us to be that way, self-righteous, measuring our worthiness by who we are or what we've done or perhaps even uh, worse by those around us. But why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's because he's a saviour. It's because you need a saviour. And so Jesus ends our passage with this profound challenge. Those who think that in themselves they are healthy, he's not come for you. He's a doctor. He's not open to clinic for us to turn up at church on a Sunday and walk in and say, you know what, I'm fine. I'm fine, nothing wrong here. What sort of doctor wants a patient like that? Unless we honestly number ourselves with the sick, he won't serve us. And those who think in themselves that they are righteous, well, here's this, hear this challenge from Jesus. I'm not calling you. You think you're righteous, you think you're upstanding enough to stand before the the God of heaven and earth, so I'm not calling you. But those who are bankrupt, with no merit, no way back, and come to him in desperate need, he says, friend... Your sins are forgiven. Leave your miserable gods. Come follow me and let the feast begin. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your wonderful plan in sending your son Jesus to serve us. Uh, We thank you for his friendship that he comes to forgive us. 
comes to call us to repent and comes to be our friend. And so, Father, we do pray that uh, those of us who are in friendship with him would see the preciousness of, of that this day. And those who are yet to come to him would see their need of him. And we pray this for his glory. Amen.